0: Welcome back to another episode of unknown to uh, this week we have a very special guest my childhood friend, the hometown hero Matthew vecino. Matt say what up to the people
1: Thanks for having me here boys I hope you guys are doing well and uh I'm excited to to talk to you guys.
0: yeah I know it's great for having you on thanks for coming dude um so a couple first question tell us a little bit about yourself uh where are you from where'd you grow up and what are you currently doing now?
1: Yeah, thanks. So, like you said, Manny, uh, my name is Matt Lucino. I grew up in Pickering, Ontario. Uh, that's how I know you, obviously. Um, grew up here, went to high school and elementary in in Pickering, and then I did my undergrad at Ryerson University, and I'm currently uh, an L1 student at Osgoode Hall Law School. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Osgoode, it's the law school that's uh, associated with York University. So. Uh, I'm there now, and uh, I'm I'm really enjoying it. I'm on second semester there, so just uh, getting ready to write exams right now, and then I'll be off. Sick, sick. How old are you, by the way? I am 23, turning 24 in, uh, in a little bit, um, so I'm uh, 97 born. Young and up-and-coming lawyer, okay? I like it. We'll see. We'll see. I still have couple more years ahead of me but uh that's the plan
2: you've grown up with muscular dystrophy so can you give us an insight on on what that is on how it impacts your life and some challenges you face and overcome
1: yeah for sure so i have congenital muscular dystrophy uh, it's a neuromuscular disease um and it, it basically means that my muscles are extremely weak and it's caused by a missing protein um so essentially my muscles are still there i can still flex my muscles i still have full mobility uh in all my muscles and all my limbs but because i'm missing a specific protein it just essentially means that my muscles can't build to become extremely strong for me to be able to do certain movements most notably of walk obviously um, so that means that i've had to use a wheelchair for my entire life uh, i got my first one when i was three and now 22 years old so it's been 20 years of driving around one of these go tarts, as i like to call them um but but yeah uh challenges i mean nothing too crazy i'd say i guess the hardest thing is just having to deal with uh, accessibility issues um not surprisingly the world isn't really meant for people with physical disabilities Uh, a lot of places aren't the most accessible whether it be uh Bars, restaurants, other public places, uh, just traveling in general. Um obviously like subways and, and go trains are pretty good, but if we're taught in air travel, it's not uh the best of people with disabilities. But I mean, there's challenges. Everybody has challenges uh in their own right. Um, but yeah, you just keep a positive outlook and and try to overcome things that that come in come in your way. Match the speed even in that thing. Hey, don't get it twisted. Man, It knows. Needs to speed. What's the, what's, uh,
3: what's the, what's top speed on that bad boy?
1: So you're going to be surprised. Top speed is about 13 kilometers an hour. It goes. Damn, it goes. It goes. It, it's and it's pretty good.
3: Match that with a little hill or just a little slope and you're you're cruising to 20, no problem.
1: You know what? Funny story. Um, we're all sports fans here on this evening that We've all been to our fair share of Jays games. Um, My favorite thing is, uh, you know how in the in the rock, I was gonna say Robbie Center. It's the Robbie Center, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. They have the uh, like those sloping cement ramps that take you from, I guess, the hundred level to Mm the five hundreds. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite. I think I've done it with man is to start at the top, clear it out, and then just rip. And you'll all the way down to the bottom, full speed, drift around the corners, and just uh, you
3: you drift on oh, this thing. It's
1: Tokyo yeah. Drano here, bro. Oh it's yeah, actually so oh, fun to witness. Oh my god, <laughs> I sick. gotta see
3: that. I gotta see that in person.
1: Man, you know, it know, you know, when like you're a little kid, you have like the ice skating trips in elementary school, or at least we did. That was my my favorite thing because I would just rip around the ice, and obviously you're on ice, and you're really slipping, sliding around, and and really took your in it there. So uh, it's 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 a good time. That's awesome. Uh
3: so before we got started with the podcast today, Manny was mentioning uh something about Matt's Muscle Crew. So I wanted to ask you about what Matt's Muscle Crew is, uh what's your favorite thing about it, and how did you guys grow in numbers so fast?
1: Yeah, for sure. So Matt's Muscle Crew uh is a team of myself, my family members, and just friends and family that every year we put together a group of, I wouldn't say 100 to 150 of us. Uh, we participate in the muscular dystrophy uh, yearly walkathon. Um, so Max Muscle is my team that I enter into this fundraising event. Um, and to date, we've raised, I think we're close to $90,000. So it's wow. been, been I guess, 13 years now, give or take. A year or two because of the pandemic but um yeah it it started off really small in 2007 uh to my team Matt small like I'm gonna say there was maybe maybe 30 of us maybe just like myself close friends and my immediate family um and then obviously like every sort of online fundraiser you would send out like mass emails and try to get people to to donate so it started out really small like that and then every year people that were donating would be like hey, can I come and and join you guys at the Durham region's must this be at 5K blocks. They so are like, yeah, sure, like the more the merrier. Um, mm. And that first year, we, we made t-shirts that said Max Muscle Crew. And then as people started to come the next year, they were like, hey, can I be a t-shirt? So we decided, sure, we're going to make this a legit thing. So uh, since 2007, every year we've made a different team shirt that says "Max Muscle" for. Uh, so we have we've had I think the first year was white. Since we've had blue, pink, orange, green. Um, for our 10 year, we did uh, a camo t-shirt, which was really cool. Um, That's awesome. I'm gonna say, man, I think has, I don't know, maybe five or six of them, uh, so far. Um, but yeah, it's it started off really small and then just sort of built and built and built and built. Now we're up to about, like I said, 100 to a 150 people um, every year. And it's gotten to the point now where so many people are interested in coming out that it's hard to make sure that everybody has a t-shirt because we don't know how many to budget for. So we usually say 150, but then you'll get like 160, 170. So it's uh it's been good it's it's a little bit uh crummy that last year we weren't able to do it because of the pandemic and it doesn't look like it's going to be happening again this year so hopefully uh once the pandemic wraps up we'll be back to doing this event in person again so that would be ideal
3: yeah that's awesome thank you for for sharing more about that i'll be sure to uh take my participation in the walk as well uh, if you'd like to have me i'd be sure to uh come on down there and walk
1: yeah absolutely not it's a good time it's it's a 5k run but i say airports around that because most people just like walk around jog have a good time what is cardio exactly
3: yeah uh will we'll probably we'll probably run for the for the last little last little meters. bit but we'll, we'll <laughs> save our. yeah i'm good at the 100 meter dash but uh I'm, i can speedwalk. save my energy for that. If
1: you need me to speed walk, I got the hips for it.
3: I can yeah, it. I'm a great it's speed a, walker.
1: It's along the waterfront in Whitby. So it's a nice uh, nice little view there too. And it's usually like, I think I said, it's usually end of May, early June. So it's normally like 15, 20 degrees. Nice, nice little uh, day outside. So it's, it's a good time. I can't
0: wait for it to come back. I still have my bracelets from the 2019 year. I have two actually. so. But um, shifting gears, um, so we talked about you talked. You mentioned you were at Ryerson. So when you were at Ryerson, you were doing sports media, and you happened to have the opportunity to have two internships: one with U Sports, the other was CBC as a writer. I know for CBC, you covered the twenty eighteen Olympics. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of insight into that experience? Um, what exactly did you cover, and that sort of stuff?
1: Yeah, for for sure. So I'll. I'll touch on U Sports as well a little bit. U um, Sports was, was a summer internship. To um, those of you that are unfamiliar, U Sports is at the NCAA of, of Canadian University Sports, so uh, their head offices are up in Richmond Hill. Um, so I was working there. I was the communications intern uh, for the summer months, so from May till, I guess, end of August, early September. Um, And my responsibility with youth sports was uh, writing articles on athletes, on coaches, writing like press releases uh, and whatnot, and a little bit of social media stuff. Um, And then to the Olympics, I actually got hired. That was a a gig. CBC is really good at hiring a bunch of sport media students at Ryerson um, to help out. So I was a writer researcher uh, for the CBC – um I think it was the prime time show now, if I think correctly. Um and the Olympics is a crazy experience, guys. You're working long hours for basically three weeks straight every day, about nine to twelve hour shifts. Um so my responsibility in that was uh helping to write some scripts, uh researching storylines. Um preparing like stat and information booklets for the producers of the show that way if they wanted to see what was coming up later on in the day uh, I would basically provide them with a packet of information that would show them all the Canadian athletes that were participating how they previously did the day before that way they could make some sort of programming decision if they needed to um so that was a really cool experience and Something that was actually really fun is because we weren't as writers, we were like a writer researcher, or a room there was, I think, uh, six of us that were there. Uh, we also supported um, the talent, the on-air uh, commentators for CBC Sports. So what was unique is they would come up to us and basically ask us to research the athletes of the sports that they were calling, whether it be finding out how an athlete did that year in a World Cup event, or if the family members had other uh participated in the Olympics. So it was it was a lot of just finding storylines, writing some strips and and basically providing the producers and the audience talent uh, with information that they could use uh to make decisions and to to communicate uh events. It was it was an incredible experience. Um like I said, it's a lot, though. It's three weeks of non-stop action. Um, just to clarify, in my capacity, I wasn't actually in Pyeongchang. Um, we were stationed out of the CBC building on, uh, on Front Street. Um, that's where most people are actually. The Olympics, it's extremely it's, it's expensive, so only the, uh, the main people are actually on location. The rest of the people, including some commentators, or back out of the CBC building, but it's, it's pretty neat. Like you get all your meals catered for you while you're there. You get tons of CBC Olympic swag. Um, it's a good time. It's there's like tons of uh, camaraderie when you're there. It's, uh, it's, it's an awesome experience. Okay. That,
2: that was awesome. I just gotta know, like, so when I'm like watching you know whether it's the olympics or like hockey or basketball there's i always pull out these stats of oh this person's father or uncle or something played in the cfl or, or some random you know stat of like a family member or what they did in the past how do you how do people find that that information like you did that role how did you just go on like google find the wikipedia page and went oh it's on wikipedia or like what did that entail
1: i mean i wouldn't necessarily say wikipedia But you may may check it out. You may check out Wikipedia to see if you can link to another source. But like, it's like looking at, so for example, if you want to see if um, someone's parent was an Olympian, you'd probably go on like the Olympic website and search, or you would go to that country's uh, like Olympic uh, NOS body and search. Um, It's... Honestly, as a researcher, it just sounds like that's what you are. You just have to know sort of what sources to look at, where to look. It could simply be doodling something like, who are Cindy Chosby's parents on on doodle and see what comes up. I mean, it's a lot of being resourceful, but I will say that there are some people um, that work for places like CBC or CSN or Sportsnet that are literally like encyclopedias of sports knowledge. Um and and particularly at the Olympics and with CBC. There's some people there that have done the Olympics since like the 70s. So they know everything. Like like they could tell you they could tell you who won the 100 meter freestyle since like 1964. Like it's it's crazy. So you do you do rely on some of those people um as well but but like i said there's some there's some sources that are pretty legit like hockey reference for example or like just the reference website that i'm sure you sports fans are familiar with you can look at like nba hockey i think mlb as well there's an olympic page on that and that's pretty good in terms of finding information um nsl website so like the canadian olympic committees team canada page has bios of all athletes and and they're up-to-date, same with the U.S. version. So it's uh, it's a lot of just being resourceful and, and trying to pick that information up. One thing I will say, though, is as a commentator, um, in a lot of sports, they have, like, a stats guy sitting beside them in the booth. I'm not sure if that's the same setup right now with COVID. But normally there's someone in there that's feeding them live information and, like, passing them notes that they can then recall on air. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some guys have their laptops open in front of them, and a lot of commentators do take, like, extensive notes. I'm not sure if you guys have seen, like, how commentators and play-by-play guys operate, but they usually have, like, a binder with both the rosters open and then they'll spend like the morning of a game literally writing jot notes beside each player so that we can just easily refer to and be like say Austin Matthews that's how we'll be able to look down and be like hey this is Austin Matthews 25th goal of the season and it's his seventh career goal versus the Montreal Canadiens I'm making that up but like they do that extensive research before the game and find little nuggets that they can use on air if uh, if something makes sense awesome
2: interesting yeah that's awesome insight because i I always wonder that i'm like what what like where do they find this info
1: that that's how they know all
0: those little stats that they pull out of nowhere and you're like how do you even know that now i'm going to start
3: listening to games and i'm going to hear those little tidbits and i'm going to be like okay you did your research good then i'm going to go search it up and if it's wrong i'm writing a strongly worded email to the to the production company for false advertisement
1: jordan jordan miller is one of the best i've seen his uh his game notes i guess i'll call them and they're super detailed it's it's pretty crazy all
2: right so following those you know the internship and the gig with with cbc you then you switch the gears to to go to law school so what what made you decide to go to law school after you know all all the things you just did?
1: Yeah, good good question. Um, I think I was always really interested in law um and being like an advocate and trying to create some sort of social change and social good. So law school is always on the back burner. Not on the back burner, but like always something that I've considered. Um and then through my smart media program, getting more experience in marketing business. Uh, we also had a, a sports law class um it became something that I was a lot more interested in as well um so I just decided to apply what's the worst that could happen right you get in you don't get in um so I applied in my final year of, of undergrad and yeah that's where I am I'm, I'm at osgo um, I ideally ideally I would like to still uh, stay connected in sports. Whether it be being an agent or, or general counsel for a sports organization, but because of my experience being disabled and and sort of seeing the challenges that other people in this community face, I'm also extremely interested in, in human rights. So I'm trying to I'm trying to balance both my interests in in say sports and corporate law as well as with uh, human rights law and. And like labor and employment stuff that really affects marginalized communities. So it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a twist, um, but it's it's something that I'm I'm really enjoying. And and people people do always ask me. They're like, so do you want to be an agent? Like, is that what you want to be? And I say like, I mean, yeah, that'd be awesome. But it's not. I didn't just start a law school just to become a sports agent um i obviously like i said of other passions as well so i'm only in my first year i'm trying to figure it out a little bit but it's law school is obviously very expensive but becoming a lawyer is not really gonna. it won't be detrimental in the sense that if i choose to get into sports again and not necessarily in a law capacity it, it won't really hurt me it'll be it'll it'll I'd
2: say give me more credibility, if that makes sense. It really does, 100%, because you put in the work.
0: To comment on that, um, I was part of the Primetime Sports Conference two years ago, and a lot of the NHL executives, and eight, you mentioned agents, but like executives and behind-the-scenes people, They're all they all have law degrees. They do. So you may not necessarily have to be an agent, or you may, like you said, general counsel or something like it. Definitely, like you said, won't help you. It'll or, or won't hurt you,
1: it will help you. No, it's it's so true. And someone else, um SmartSnet's president, Bart Gapsley, like he he's a awesome uh hall graduate. He's a lawyer. So like you said, man, a lot of executives and sports are lawyers. So I mean it opens a lot of doors, I think, as well.
3: So my next question, uh, it's kind of a two-parter, but we'll start with the first one. So um what is power hockey? Uh, I think we were talking about it a little bit before the episode got recorded. So I just wanted to know some more information about it because it's new to me. And how is it different from other forms of you know, hockey such as sledge, ball, and ice hockey?
1: Yeah, great question, Matt. So power hockey is uh, a, a pair of sport. Um, obviously, it's named power. Um, and it follows basically... of the same rules that regular ice hockey avoid in terms of offsides, face offs, your general like premise and rules of of regular ice hockey. Um, But what makes it different from other para sports, particularly slide hockey, is unlike slide hockey, which really only benefits uh, individuals with disabilities that have great upper body strength. That can put pile themselves across the ice and that can actually use their upper body strength to shoot the puck and, and balance themselves. Power hockey is more geared to people like myself that rely on power chairs for mobility. Um, so power hockey, we all play in our electric wheelchairs. Um should have made this clear, but it's not on ice, obviously. Uh it's in it's in a gymnasium usually. Okay. Um we, we play floor side. So, four uh, forwards, the setups, or four, four, four outfielders, I'll say. Um, it's usually three forwards, one defenseman or woman, and a goaltender, so hence four side. Um, mm-hmm. the, the only major difference in terms of rules from ice hockey, slide hockey, ball hockey is we don't play with two blue lines and a center ice red line. Or there's, and there's no icing. Instead, it's it's more like roller hockey, if you're familiar, in the sense that the court is divided into a half. So our our red line, like you would have in ice hockey, is a blue line in a sense. So it's it's almost like basketball, where there's the over and back rule, where once you cross the center line, you can't go back. Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of the same idea in in power hockey um but aside some go ahead
3: i was just gonna say so basically like you're kind of forwarding the ball or the object into the zone and then you kind of just have to set up and make your play in that sense
1: exactly so
0: is it is it we're gonna get strategy a little bit here but i play roller hockey so similar to roller hockey do you guys play in like a diamond shape and then you kind of all rotate or is it more fixed positions
1: yeah so that's it that's a great trust in Mandela. Um, one thing that's really unique about power hockey is because it's a game that really allows people with a variety of disabilities to participate. Um, it means that everybody can play a specific role and can really hone in on a specific skill set. So, to your question about a diamond formation, Mandela, uh, in my offensive zone, yes, when you play like a diamond formation. However, it's not so much of a rotational setup, because normally a player like myself, who I'd be classified as a level three player because I have my stick taped to my wheelchair because I can't physically hold it. I would play at the blue line at the top of the diamond. And my responsibility is to hold the line, keep the ball in, and distribute from the top, where level two and level one players, which are usually athletes that have the most upper body strength. They're the shooters, they're the danglers, they're the guys that are really soaring. Um, but but it's unique in the sense that there's a position for everybody. It's not like slide hockey or wheelchair basketball or or uh, murder ball, wheelchair rugby where you need to be physically fit and have a lot of upper body strength to itself. And power hockey you don't need that. As long as you can drive a wheelchair, you can excel in whatever sort of role that you want to play. Um, like I was saying, there is that ranking system. Level 1 players have the most range of movement and strength. Um, and they're usually the dual stores. Level 2 have somewhat range of motion and strength, but not to the same degree. And then there's level 3 players like myself who we have our sticks. Uh, mounted or attached to our wheelchairs in some capacity because we can't hold the stick or, or shoot the ball as hard. And and players like myself that have limited mobility, we're able to play more the defensive style of game where we more utilize our driving ability and our hockey smarts in order to block out players or, or forward check and set picks uh, to give space and create room for the more skilled play. so it's a it's a really unique game it's extremely competitive uh very fast paced um and something that people are really surprised about is there's a lot of contact like there's tons of contact in power hockey um i've seen guys and girls have their wheelchairs flipped because they've been t bummed or someone reverses into someone um when I was younger, I was a little bit reckless, uh, and people used to call me Stott Stevens because when players were driving down the side of the of the boards and and having their head down a little bit trying to stick out the little ball, I would angle my chair and full speed reverse into them. Um, so it's throwing yeah, I So i a little so a little, little hit check. I had my uh, fair share of penalties. Um, but yeah, it's extremely competitive. It's extremely fast, um, extremely physical. Um, in terms of equipment, if you guys are familiar with wiffle balls, the little like circular—obviously uh, sur- they're circular—but white squishy balls that have holes in them. We play with those. We play with those balls, and then floor ball sticks, which is really popular in in Europe. They're not like regular ball hockey sticks. They're they're skinnier, more of a rounded shaft, and the blade has holes in them. Um, we use, we use those. Um, but otherwise uh, we use uh, a little bit smaller hockey nets, um, just in the sense that there isn't so much room for top shelf holes. So it's probably like half the height. Um, so, so if you're sitting in a wheelchair, your crossbar is probably just below your head, but otherwise, the uh the net's the same size um some players choose to wear shin pads if they're blot a lot of shots others don't some players wear helmets most don't but yeah it's uh it's extremely exciting there's uh leads all across canada and, and north america um europe and australia as well uh it's 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 crazy i definitely recommend uh looking at power hockey online and and watching some games
3: definitely gonna have to do that sounds amazing with all the aggressiveness just seems like regular hockey uh so my second question uh you kind of already touched up on it so i guess you would play more of like a defensive position uh, being at the top of the line keeping the ball in the zone uh what team do you play for or did you play for and what are some of your fondest memories uh just playing power hockey
1: Yeah, so sure. so the the interesting thing about Power Hockey right now is how it works in most cases is there's like house league centers across Canada. So I play for the Power Hockey in Toronto. Um, and in my center, there are four teams of about 12 players each. So there's like, uh, like 48 players in our league. Um, so I've been playing in this particular league for the past uh three seasons prior to that i played for another uh toronto organization um sorry can you repeat the second half of your question matt
3: just what was like your fondest memory playing with any of the organizations or uh things like that
1: yeah fondest memory would probably be just winning championships um in my in my old organization uh I was on some some pretty good teams and uh I think it was my last year in that organization actually. We uh we we pretty much ran the table. I think we were like we played 20 games in the regular season, and I I wanna say we were like 17 and three, pretty, pretty good, and then ended up winning wow. the, the championship in an OT. Uh and my dad was on the bench that year coaching, so it was a heck of a season. Um and and even last year in my in my new organization, Mr. V behind the bench Mr. leading the team to the chip. Mr. V leading the team to the chip. It was uh, it was wild. Um, and then even even more recently, so that was probably four or five years ago. Uh, last year in, in my new organization, uh, Power Hot Toronto, um, we weren't very good. Our team wasn't very good, um, but we finally started to put it together. The last five, six games of the season heading into the playoffs. So that was a fine memory because we've been had been building all season long and we had really good uh, camaraderie of uh, the players on our team. So it was nice to sort of see us struggle early on and then sort of come together closer on and and really work and improve and We we joked but if our season didn't get canceled, uh we think that we would have actually pulled out a championship everybody was kind of getting a little bit afraid of us because we had finally put it together and we won four to five going into the playoffs. so we were a little bit feared everybody thought they had it easy because they were beating us early on in the season pretty good but but uh but we, we turned it around so those are probably my two favorite memories playing um one one thing pretty unique is uh Power Hockey Canada, which is the new governing body of Power Hockey in, in, in the country, uh, they held the first ever Power Hockey Canada Cup two years ago at Humber College in, in 2019. And unfortunately, I didn't make uh, Power Hockey Toronto's competitive team that participated in that tournament, but Power Hockey Canada asked me if I wanted to do play by play to the tournament. So I got to call, I think I told 14 of like 20 games uh, over a three-day period. So that was a pretty neat, unique experience uh, getting to, to do play-by-play. And, and surprisingly, it was really my my first real opportunity. I had done a little bit of play-by-play at Ryerson in the sport media program, but nothing like this. So it was unique to watch some, some players that I know from other parts of Canada and, and the U.S. And, and get to call the tournament. So it was, a, it was a fun few days, a long few days, but a fun few days. Can
0: I add a comment on that? Sure. So um, you guys don't know this, but when we were kids, we used to play foot hockey at school, and we used to play hockey in the gym. Guess who the commentator was? This guy. So we've always thought he would be the TSN uh, color commentator. So that's kind of a perfect fit.
1: It's true. Everybody's always joking, and said I was gonna be a commentator and uh they say they would always say at like recess, hey Matt, do you wanna play? And I'd be like, nah, nah, nah. You guys play. I'm just gonna sit on the sidelines and commentate and uh and joke around and, and have fun like that. So it was a it was a really cool experience actually, and I definitely do really
2: that's awesome. That's real awesome. So, hold on, let me recap now. We've got undergrad at Ryerson Sports Media, writer, internship, writer, and research engineer CBC. We got, uh, what, what am I missing out Player of Power Hockey,
3: yeah, lawyer,
2: and then yep. we have commentator of Power Hockey. What uh, like. And then I'm just looking at our notes now, and Mandela has written down here.
0: good law student. Oh, yeah, law, I Osgood forgot law, law
2: student. Now I'm sorry, that's <laughs> my bad. That's my bad. Law student. So we, I, my hand doesn't have enough fingers.
3: Oh, oh, one more thing. Champion. He likes his chip with the dip. Don't do. forget it. I do. He likes his chips. Okay, with the dip. and then
2: i I again. I'm going to refer the notes that Mandela had offered us. Um, you also host a podcast. With Power Hockey Canada? What what can you not do? Like, what do you not do, I should ask? Like, <laughs> I'm... What do... I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I'm worthless. I You do so much, and I do, like, nothing. <laughs>
3: or you're not worthless. Uh
2: <laughs>
1: No, you're definitely not worthless. I mean, you guys are running an elite podcast here, so you're definitely doing a lot. Ooh, um, I, thank you. Do you hear that, boys? He called us no, a Yes. It's... You guys are elite. no, we're
2: talking to three Joe Schmoes over here. <laughs> appreciate
1: the love. Appreciate the love. <laughs> yeah,
3: we're almost elite, maybe soon,
1: but not you're, right now. You're drawing. You're drawing. Yeah, um, yeah. I. Uh, you're right, Tori. Just started a podcast uh, with Power Hot Canada to grow uh, the sport and, and get some more listeners and and supporters and hopefully get some some more hype around the hype around the game. I think I mentioned earlier when I was talking about power hockey uh, in general is that there's, there's a lot of participation globally. Um, There's leads in in Canada, in the U S and Australia and all throughout Europe. So the the power hockey Canada podcast has, has two goals. One grow the sport uh, because at the end of the day, we're trying to get power hockey to be a Paralympic sport one day. Uh, and, and two, just sort of talk to disabled individuals that are involved in the game to sort of break down some stereotypes that people have about disabled people. I think I think the biggest thing is the media does a really poor job at portraying disabled people. Um, something I always say, and it's pretty well researched, is in the media, you're either a super athlete if you're disabled, or you're... Someone that's coming back from like a traumatic car crash, and you were paralyzed, and now you're somehow by the by Mother Nature, the grace of God, you're walking again. It so it's those sort of two narratives, and and part of the thing that we're trying to do for this podcast is obviously talk about power, hot you, but sort of show that disabled people are regular people as well, right? Like we're in school, where we have families, or in relationships, we work. Uh, we are get food and grab beers and play video games. Uh, so it's, it's kind of twofold. It's, it's promote the sport and just sort of break the stereotypes of what it means to be disabled.
2: Dad, honestly, I can't think of a better person to lead up that podcast, to host that podcast. Cause just getting to know you through this, this interview, I can see that you're perfect for that. Like to get that message across and, right. and we'll support you uh, whatever way we can um yeah no thank you for coming on I think Manny's got one more final question
0: yeah so just to share with all our listeners and us as well um I'm going to phrase it differently than I put it down in the questions what would you how would you explain the importance of inclusion in not only sports but just in
1: life in general daily life that is a that is a great question um and I think the biggest thing that I can say is just treat people normally. Like you always talk about like equity and equality that that's really it. It's, it's the raft of equity, right? We, we, we want to be treated fairly. We want to be treated like everybody else. Um, so I I think the biggest thing of inclusion is, is just take a second, Treat people the right way, include them, don't exclude them. Um, and, and, and specifically with disabled people, I think a lot of people are apprehensive when they first get to meet someone that has a disability because they don't know what to expect. And they don't know if, like, what to say or what they shouldn't say or, or what the person can do and can't do. So I think the biggest thing is just be open-minded um, and and just treat someone like their regular person. Um and don't don't go into uh don't go into a conversation with any sort of uh, preconditions or or pre-notions of, of things that you think a disabled person uh has or experiences or, or like I said, what they can and can't do. That's that's a great response. Um, I'm just going to leave
0: it at that. I can't put it anymore that way. I mean, you guys have heard everything that he's accomplished, like we listed off before, and the obstacles and barriers he's had to come up against and rise over. Just credit to you and keep going. You're, you're going places.
1: Do you mind if I add one thing, Manny, if that's okay? For sure. Just going back to this being disabled and just like inclusivity and equality and equity. I think one thing that is important that I like to stress is if you're meeting someone that has a disability and you think they need help, in my opinion, wait for them to ask you. I think the biggest problem sometimes is people automatically assume that disabled people need help with things and it can come off as almost... um, Like a slight or arrogant kind of? Yeah, thank you. I, I... Last than a thought, exactly. Like like a slight, like you don't think they're capable, where that's not necessarily the truth. So I would say maybe maybe you should want to ask them if they need help, sure, but don't assume that they need help. Most disabled people know that there's certain things that they need assistance with. And if they do, they will ask you. Don't just assume uh what they're capable
0: of. Yeah, like you said, just treat everybody like they're normal, right? You wouldn't walk up to a normal well, for this sake, we'll say able body person and be like, hey, do you need help with this when they're just walking down the street, right? So you shouldn't do the same for someone in, who's disabled.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's nice to ask, but you have to do it in the right way. You can't just automatically assume like they need assistance. I've seen I've seen people like drive in their wheelchairs and someone assumes they don't know where they're going. So they get behind their chair and they try to like push them or guide them. And it's like, no, stop. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm good. Anyways, sorry to add it on a sad note, right yeah
0: No, no, no. That's yo, That's good. We need to let the people know. That's that's good insight. But to end it on a positive, happy note, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure. Um, We'd love to have you back on sometime in the future. Um, We'll definitely be shouting out your pod on our uh, platforms. We can help each other out in that sense, you know? Appreciate it and uh boys anything left to add before we uh tune out or chime out sorry
3: uh i just wanted to say like always thank you for coming on to the podcast and sharing your stories and experience and listing off the many and many and many and many accomplishments that you have uh it's always great to hear from other people and more sports related topics so thank you
1: nice to have you fellas
2: thank you again matt for coming on Thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. We appreciate you. This is Corey signing off for the Unknowns Hill Podcast. Peace!